Hi, and welcome to Insecurity, episode two, ones versus zero. I'm Max Zazowskis. I live in Toronto, and I work for a large financial institution as a security consultant. And I'm Matt Thompson. I'm living in BC. I've been working various computer-related jobs over the years. I'm not exactly what you'd call a professional, though, which is why we decided I'd make a good counterpoint for Max. What we're really hoping to do with this podcast is get uh, a general sense of security um, for computer security, build it from the ground up so that we've also got um, good fundamentals. Ideally, when we're done with this, we're going to have... Uh, enough well actually if it's done uh we'll have enough of a background to actually help out uh with computer security and even make it to the point where maybe we can get jobs or get better jobs with a better understanding yeah i'd hope to be able to help somebody get into uh the computer industry and be mindful of security i think that'd do a lot to round someone out properly um so i guess really we're going to start people from the ground up Last time we gave them some basics about, uh, you know, just computer hardware. This time we're going to go a little bit more in-depth uh, into what makes up a computer program and just lay down another layer of base to get uh, a little bit more in front of somebody so that they can get that job into the industry that they want to be in. Excellent. So let's get started. I'm pretty excited about this one. Um, the building blocks of all of the computers as we know them. Yeah, it's pretty common knowledge that, uh, you know, computers speak in ones and zeros. And, uh, like, even my mother knows that, and she's not what you'd call computer literate. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's one thing to say it, but why do computers speak in ones and zeros? And how do computers speak in ones and zeros? I think it all comes back down to how computers are made. I mean, it's an electronic component, and electronics make up everything. And, and well, I mean, Matt, you were part of a secret government experiment in Quebec. Um, I, I think it would probably be good for you to take a little stab at uh, why electronics are made up of ones and zeros and kind of what it means. Aren't all the government projects in Quebec secret? Or corrupt. Uh yeah, sure. Why not? I yeah, I did. I actually took part in a electronics course, um, and we sort of touched on how and why the the electronics work. Like we were building, obviously not circuits quite as complex as a computer, but we started with basic circuitry, and essentially what. Uh, what they're looking at or how they work. Um, the most basic circuitry is a switch. So you would have, you have a current that runs all the way through, <laughs> all the way through in a circuit. And then from there, you've got something to control whether the current continues to flow or not. And that's a switch. You can either turn on or off the the electricity that's flowing through the circuit. Um, the easiest way to visualize this is a light switch, because uh, that way it's very clear when the light switch is turned on, you see that there's a light. When it's turned off, you don't. So that's pretty basic. Um, but why why would this be relevant to computers? Well. The switch on the wall and the circuit being the, you know, electricity coming into your house and through um, one of the breakers or fuses that goes all the way out and comes right back. That's a circuit, right? Mm -hmm. And the switch is the thing that people come and they influence a decision upon and it has an effect that people can see. Right. So computers aren't that different. I mean, people want to do something and they go and they they do something to a computer or a keyboard or a mouse and it has an effect right and yeah. computers run on electricity so like th there's got to be some correlation there so computers are billions of tiny light switches you just blew my mind 
so that makes sense. Generally, when you've got the electronics, you've got uh, more complex switches. You've got various different things that the switches will do or inter how they'll interact. When you look at a light switch, again, since it's the easiest analogy, um, if you've got a light switch that has two switches to control one light, like one at either end of the hall, then at that point, the switches are more complex than basically just on and off. They also have other uh, other variables to it. It's essentially it becomes a logic gate. Uh, in this case, what that means is, based on the input, whether one switch is on and the other switch is off, the switches have to know how to how to react. The circuit has to be built so that it knows how to react properly. Because um, if you turn on one light switch and the other light switch is on already, then the light goes off even though both switches are on. Right. And so then that becomes um, essentially a logic gate uh, exclusive or or X or. Yeah, and I think I've got a little bit of an obsessive-compulsive disorder with the light switches, okay. like around the house. So I've got one at the bottom of the stairs and one at the top of the stairs, and they both affect the light at the top of the stairs. And um, I like the light switches to be down when they're off, right? So if they're both put to the up position and the lights off I kind of have to go and like fix that <laughs> do you yeah huh yeah I think and is that is is that a thing that everyone in the in the house knows no i don't think so i haven't told anybody about that that's just kind of something that i do hmm so the next time i come and visit you i'll just wreak mayhem well try and keep the lights set to on the whole time yeah, because, um, I mean, some of the light sockets are next to other ones that are only the single position one on or off. Like, there's only one light switch for it. So, I like them to both be down when it's off. Well, Anyways, I that's probably that a little bit too much about my inner mental issues. But, uh, <laughs> um, sorry, the... I, I, I kind of pulled this away from this. Going back to... No, no, not at all. I think uh, having having a really rigorous set of uh, life choices is what makes for good computer people. Uh, I think you're probably right about that. A switch. I don't think it's called a switch in electronic terms. Is there a proper name for it? Um, in, a, in a circuit? Like something that makes these decisions? Or the on, well, on and off? <laughs> technically they're called switches as far as I understood, but you've got circuits, you've got, um, no, just in the circuits, you've got a switch, you've got gates potentially. And the gate is uh, what? Gate is, it's essentially a tiny little switch that has, uh, different outcomes as to what it will output based on what is input. So you've got things like AND gates, OR gates, XOR gates, or exclusive OR gates. Um, an AND gate is if you take two pieces of input, it'll make a decision and output something based on what is input. AND will automatically give you, it'll output true if both of the inputs are true. For instance, if you put electricity in both inputs, it'll output electricity. Okay. If you put uh, one side off, the other side on, it's not going to do anything, and vice versa. So it, it, it like needs enough pressure to open up that gate to kind of let the electricity through? Pretty much. That's a good, that's a good way of thinking of it. You've got two hoses <laughs> pumped into a water balloon. If both of the hoses are on, the balloon will burst and it'll go out. Okay, cool. Um, then you've got OR gates. Uh, OR is a logical operation that outputs true when either 
or both are true. So for instance, if you've got one side that has electricity, then it'll automatically output electricity. If you have neither that have electricity, it's not going to do anything. And if you have both sides with electricity, it will output electricity. So I, I like rum and Cokes. I like rum and I like Coke. If I have rum or Coke, I'm happy. If I have rum and Coke, I'm happy. If I have nothing, I'm just <laughs> kind of bored. Then I'm sad. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Spot on. <laughs> and then lastly, we've got the XOR, or exclusive OR. It'll output whenever both outputs are different. So you have one or the other exclusively, and everything else doesn't output. So if both of them are off, they're exactly the same. It's not going to do anything. Both of them are on. They're exactly the same. It's not going to do anything. If one is on and the other is off, that's the only time it'll output and, electricity. And that's the, the light socket uh, example we had before with the two switches for that same light. Correct. So uh, I've, I've heard of these transistor things before, that uh, millions of them make up um, like a CPU that we have nowadays. Billions, trillions, whatever. Um, are those are those gates? Are those okay? Okay, and then they there's uh, this logic that could be applied, which are those logic gates, which um, allow you to output different things based on what you put into it. And if we want to touch base back with our pilot episode where we talked yep. about uh, memory and hard drives and um, and CPUs. The, the state of anything would be held uh, in one position or another based on input put into it through an electrical input. So, for instance, a hard drive, um, like the old classical hard drives, it's a, um, it, it's a magnetic setting. So if you apply electricity to the magnetic piece at one point, then it stays on. You take away the electricity and it stays on still. But for memory, it's uh, something called the capacitor, which actually uh, will hold the setting as long as the, the current's applied to it. And then it'll unleash, uh, if the electricity goes away, that'll dissipate and go back to uh, a zero setting or an off setting. Capacitors are like little batteries. Uh, they kind of get, as long as there's the power going to it, it'll okay. keep its charge. That's, that's how I understand memory to work. Is that correct? Um, from what I know. Because I know that they'll, they'll um, go back to, like if you turn off the machine, the computer, then the whatever was in memory will get lost. Um, and then CPU registers are just the the state that's held at the moment by the single electrical input going through it at that time based on the logic gates that are within cool. it. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, sorry. I was just saying cool. I'm, I'm making sure that I'm following along here pretty much pretty clear on this. Okay. So the ones and the zeros in the computer, when we start abstracting this away from electricity, we start developing names for these things. So if something is a one or a zero, that's a bit, right? So on and off is the actual electrical input to it. One and zero is the logical description of it. And that would be a bit. One being on, zero being off. Right. And you can actually do math based on these bits. So um, a bit um, is, is a one or a zero. And... Um, it's it's a binary system, so you can start stacking these things next to each other. And um, if you have a one and you want to add another one to it, then you'd have a one zero as the output to it. Now, one zero doesn't mean ten in this case. It actually means two because it's a binary system. It's a base two system. So 
it goes, you got your ones column, you got your twos column, then got your fours column. So if you wanted to have like something represented as four in binary, it would be one zero zero. You'd have one in the fours column and plus the rest, which is zeros. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I'm just trying to, to follow along with the numbers in my head. When you... I'm just thinking about the, the, the actual breakdown. Because you've got um, a one column, a two column, a four column, and then uh, the next one is the eight, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's powers of two. Just like how when our numbering system is a decimal numbering system, um, deca means 10, right? So it's a powers of 10. So you've got your you've got your ones column, you've got your tens column, you've got your hundreds column, and you multiply that by 10, you've got your thousands column. You know, it's a, it's a power of 10. Right. Or it's 10 to the power of, better said. And then in this binary system, you can make up all of the numbers using 8, 4, 2, and 1 in the correct um, sequence. For instance, if I wanted 5, I would have 1, 4, and 1, 1. Yes, exactly. And then if I wanted 9, I could do an 8 and a 1. Yep. If I wanted 7, I would have a 4, a 2, and a 1. Correct. So you can actually come up with all of them out of that. Yeah, and if you just need more digits, then you just keep adding more powers of at the front, right? Yeah, so you'd have 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, <laughs> and on, yep. 24. And, and that's why memory sizes come in those mul multiples or not multiples, powers of two. Huh. Um, so, coming back to topic, the ones and the zeros and the addition of them, there's something in the computer that does this, and it's it's based on the circuitry, right? Okay. Do you want to describe uh, a half adder to people? So, the circuitry, the math, from what I understand, is based off of uh, this thing called a half adder. And the half adder takes two inputs. Um, so you've got the numbers that you want to add. In this case, we can do, uh, based off of the binary that we just went over, you would have one and one. And if you put that into this half adder, it would come out the two inputs go in simultaneously. They use these gates that we were talking about earlier. They go through two gates. They go through both an AND and an XOR. Uh, the AND gate, again, is the one that will output true if both of the inputs are true. And the XOR is the one that would do um, true wherever both differ. So, to add these together, you'd have, for instance, if you've got 1 and 0 that you're adding together, they would come out as 1. And then nothing comes out of the AND gate. If you had 1 and 1, then they would come out through the XOR gate because they're the same. The XOR gate is going to output nothing. However, the AND gate will output a 1 in this case. And what that actually does, what the AND gate's output does, is that lets the half adder know that it has to actually put um, the 1 that came out from that gate into a column that is uh, essentially it's called a carry. Um, so it moves the 1 over to the next point. So, for instance, when we were doing the binary that we were talking about before, we had the ones column, the twos column, the four column, and the eight column. Um, if you put in two ones, you're going to have a two, but that two is shown as one zero. Right. So the carry means 
that it's going out over into the uh, the second column. So instead of outputting two because it can't do that, it'll output a one and a zero. Right. So I guess this is like in our numbering system, the decimal numbering system. If I have nine and I add one to it, you know, in the ones column I have a zero and I carry the one over to the tens column. So I write it down as one zero being 10 in our numbering system. Right. Cool. So I think we're touching on a couple topics here um, that are probably worth discussing a little bit further. So there's the numbering system that we have. Um, so we we do decimal, computers do binary, but there's, mul there's powers of binary that come out to things that are used in other, uh, for other uses in computation. So because it really sucks writing all of these ones and zeros all the time, we want to make it a little bit more convenient. So that next um, numbering system that would come out is octal, where we do we, four of those ones and zeros, smush them together, and so we count up to a maximum of eight. So it's easier to represent on paper, right? And right. that's that's actually used in IP addresses. So we have octal.octal.octal.octal. If you've ever seen an IP address, um, sorry, you've got four digits of octal together. And that's four sets of three. Four sets of four. For IP addresses? I thought so. Maybe I'm mistaken on this one. Maybe we'll have to edit that out. 192.168.0.1. <laughs> it's xxx point xxx point xxx point xxx yeah so we, we could also represent it hexadecimally and a hexadecimal is um base 16. hexadecimal is base 16 so you've got your 0 through 9 representing your first 10 possibilities and then you add to that a through f so if you count, you go 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, A, B, C, D, E, F. And then you'd go to the next column over, you'd put a 1 there, and you'd start again in the in that 1's column of the hexadecimal as 0. They had, they made up this math, or they made up a, a, a base 16 numbering system, and the best they could come up with was letters. Yeah. <laughs> why would why wouldn't you come up with new numbers? Because uh, we got to represent it some some way that people can understand. Like Rextober. <laughs> so so another concept that we touched on. I mean, so anyways, um, so for an IP address, the point that I was getting back to is that an IP address, um, each decimal point within it. So you've got four sections of an IP address, mm -hmm. right? And they go up to a maximum of 255. So from 0 to 255. So that could be represented as um, 8 octal characters, which it is in in the computer itself. Or it could be, sorry, 4 octal characters or 2 hexadecimal characters. Right? 2 hexadecimal, 16 times 16. Wait. It's 16 to the power of 2. Yeah. Or 4 to the... Sorry. Or 8 to the power of 4. 16. Yeah. Uh, or if we go back to the binary, you know, 2 to the power of 16, obviously, is the reverse. Does that work? It's 2 to the power of 8. I'm dumb. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, so there are different numbering systems for different purposes. Um, they can make things easier when one of the other numbering systems is too complex. As a rule. Okay? We yeah. can agree to that? Yes. Okay, then we can move forward because we're getting <laughs> way too complicated there. Um, okay, so the next thing that we talked on about the, the logic gates and the different output is that the machine 
has, when we do something with a machine, any kind of program that we write, it's broken up into two segments, right? There's the, the data segment, which is um, the stuff that we're inputting into it. And then there's the code segment, which is what we want it to execute on our behalf. So for the adding thing, we were adding as the, that's the code. So there was, there's a special code that's programmed into the, that, that's fabricated into the chip that it knows when it hits this code, it's going to go through this routine doing the addition stuff. And there's tons of different codes that they can do. And they, this is why um, CPUs keep getting more transistors and more complex because they keep adding functionality to them when they go up a generation. Okay. So the the 64-bit CPUs that we have nowadays have a ton of different capabilities. They've, they've increased the opcodes, um, which has increased the amount of transistors that's needed uh, because they're also increasing the number of registers that are on the CPU by the different combinations of activities that they can do. And it just it's, it's a lot more complicated than they were back in the day when there was a 386 with a limited instruction set or even before that. So, um, and then the data thing, the data segment is is the input that we we're doing for that half adder. So, is it on or off? Right. Yeah. And if we want to go back to our pilot episode, we talked about adding five and three together to come out to an answer of eight. That happens in the CPU, and it happens in a blip in the CPU, but it actually takes a little bit more time. So, so this is concept. Um, in the CPU, well, to execute that code segment, we have to be able to speak the machine's language. And it's something that's called machine language. And it's in binary. So there's, there's a certain structure to it. When it receives that binary instruction set, it'll execute the action that it needs to do in the register that it needs to do it um, with the extra input that you choose to do with it. So this is, do I want to turn on the light socket or not? The light socket's already programmed to turn the light on or off. And you just need to make that decision by adding that input. Right? So the manipulating the light sock, uh, the light switch in one way or another would be the machine code. And the actual uh, intention of somebody would be the data part of this. So going back to the example we did before, if we wanted to say, I want to put the value of three into a register, then we'd do something like one zero one one zero zero zero, right? Of course. <laughs> Just bear with me. Bear with me for a second. Zero 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 one one. So that first part that I said before the bear with me is the load command into the AL register, which is like the first register that's that's in the CPU. Um, and then it tells that next part, the 00000011 means the value 3. And because it sucks to say that, we could shorten that to hexadecimal and just go B0, 0, 3. And like I said, that, that means load the number three into the AL register. And then we do the same thing for, you know, load zero five into the BL register. And then we want to say add the AL and the BL register. And then that value of eight, that, that is the combination of three plus five, automatically gets put into the AL register. And then we do something with that. Right, and it sucks to say that, and it sucks to write that, <laughs> and so we've people, if they had to write it that way, would always be making mistakes. So what they've done is they'd said, "We're going to abstract this. We're going to make it in such a way that people can can make sense of it a lot more, and because people don't speak binary and people don't speak hex, so what we're going to do is we're going to make something called." assembler, 
which is going to allow people to use these mnemonic opcodes. And all that means is we're going to give a name for that. So we're going to say load 3, or load AL3, which means load the value 3 into the AL register. And the next one would be load BL5. Add AL BL. And then that would put the value of 8 into the AL register, which we could then take out of that register and do whatever we wanted to do with the rest of the program. Hmm. But at some point, that still needs to get put into machine language. So the code, we type it into the machine, we, we run it through assembler, creates this object code, gets run through a loader, which changes that into machine language and actually runs that step through. So the loader is doing all the hard work. The loader is the thing that uh, converts it over to the machine language. Assembler is a way for us to interact, like for us to input something that makes more sense to us to have like it to be more clear. And then right. um, it gets sent from assembler to uh, to the loader. Right, and, and everything's baby steps, right? With computing, like, first we had to figure out how to make a computer turn on, and we had to make figure out how to make it change lights, had to make figure out how to do that loader thing on the lights so that we could get a visual output of what we wanted. And then over time, we've condensed it down to to the running it through this machine language, then we've abstracted the machine language into assembler. Assembler is still very complicated, very long to write. You know, we just keep reiterating over this, making it easier to do. And we assembler is what you call a low-level programming language. Um, it basically runs exactly what you want it to run, and it just changes it over from how you have it written into the, um, into the machine language and just runs it. And so those have been abstracted further and further out. So now you've got other programming languages, things like C++ and stuff. C++, does that yeah. act as a go-between for like more real human language than it interacts with assembler, than assembler interacts with loader? Um, it, it's not all stacked on top of assembler like that. Okay. Um, so what actually, when you write... C++ uh, uh, code, it actually compiles it down into the object code, which will run through a loader okay. um, to just execute it. And it's, it's, it's kind of parallel to assembler. They've just, it's just way more complicated, and it understands how to make things more convenient for humans to interact with that machine language that it needs to. Okay. And so, and so that's why it's split into two tasks now. Um, now you have to compile the code to an executable, um, and then the executable runs through the, the loader to turn it into mission language. Cool. Okay. I think that was a little bit heavy, but I think that was pretty clearly explained. Thanks. Okay. Uh, yeah, it needs to be heavy because, I mean... This is, this is how it works. People need to understand just a little bit about how the computer works. Not a lot, but it, it's a topic that we'll keep touching on um, as we start seeing what bad guys can do and how they exploit weaknesses in, in people's understanding of how a computer works. Um, so, so far we've just been talking about static input, right? And if you write a program to do the same thing all the time, I don't know how often you'd want a program that just puts out outputs eight. Um, there's probably a use for that, but most of the time we want a computer to do things for people. Right. So this dynamic type of input that somebody could come up with for a special scenario, a uh, specific scenario, I should say. I don't, I don't know how special it is to add a couple numbers together, but we want to allow people to come up with their own things they want to add together to make things more convenient for them, for instance. 
right? Yes. So I'm still trying to think of a program that would output eight. What what benefits it would have? Why would I want that? Um, There's got to well, be examples. You, I'm just trying to think you, of them. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why someone would want to do that. It just seems so archaic. Um, so what people do is they have in the programming language they write the code that says, okay, I'm going to add these things together. But then they have something called a variable, which allows somebody to come up with their own input to put in. So instead of saying, I want to add five and three, you're saying, I want to add X and Y. And then the people have to input what X is and the people have to input what Y is. That's right. Variables. Mm. algebraic so uh, so yeah so we want to to give people the option I mean we don't only want to give people the option of numbers we want to give people the option of writing text like an email editor right that that allows people to write whole paragraphs and sentences and theses on these things and and then send them through so the concept of, of a variables evolved over time it's gotten bigger and bigger but it started off at its very basic you get is emails that contain feces not feces theses oh. like a thesis oh. <laughs> i was wondering like i i, I need to upgrade but, my computer i guess i can't input feces onto my my email I mean, editor maybe, maybe the content sometimes resembles the feces but no oh okay um <laughs> So, uh, so at its mo most basic, right? We had a bit before representing um, on or off, and and you even touched on it when you said true or false, right? So there's something called a boolean variable, where it's either true or false. So we can allow someone to choose true or false and represent it by one bit. Or we could have somebody enter in a whole number, which is called an integer. And so somebody could put in the number 24, and it would be stored in 8 bits or a byte. It's also called a byte. right? Or you could have somebody enter in just one of the characters on the keyboard. And because the keyboard characters are made up of um, all the possible combinations on the keyboard, uh, in the English language at least, are um, 8 bits. So there's like up to 255 different combinations. Um, so that's also a byte. So a character can represent an integer or a character, and a single bit can represent a true or false or a boolean. Um, then you know, 255 up to 255 might not be that great for somebody to enter. Uh, or the value for a variable to hold. So then we might want to increase that to a, a long integer, which means we'll have two bytes instead of one byte, so it can hold you know, to a power of two greater than that. Or um, sometimes whole numbers don't really work out in real life, and that's why we have something called a real number, or a number with a decimal place in it, which in the computer is called a floating point number. So we can store that. And so now we're getting a lot more diverse, right? And we can have a whole bunch of characters next to each other. Uh, so somebody could actually write a sentence out, or at least more than just one letter at a time. So we'll put those together in, in uh, an array of characters called a string. And as we start getting later into the age of computing and the programming languages, become equipped to handle these things better. Um, we get we get more function and capabilities out of these things to do more and more with computers. Does that make sense? Is this where the punch cards come in? Ooh, punch cards. Punch cards are somewhere around the lines of machine language. That was the that was the program being read through in machine language. It doesn't really have a lot of choice for variables in it, as far as I know. No, because you would have to punch the individual cards. But that also had a really good... Oh, sorry, that was a digression, but um, also a bad joke. But it had a good um, 
analogy for the ones and zeros. Essentially, you would either have a hole or you wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. That's what the readers would do. They'd, they'd read through that and say, um, what does this mean? Um, so I guess where I was going with all of this... <laughs> yeah, sorry to have, have derailed that. Uh, no, absolutely. So you've got strings, which are uh, a, a series of, in this case, letters or numbers. You've got letters, which would be um, int, integers. Uh, an, an integer is a, is a integer whole number. is a whole number. The floating point numbers are decimal points. The character is uh, a letter or a number or a number, but it's not treated as an integer. Right, or it could be like a slash too, like a special character that's not really a letter. Right, it's just like anything on the keyboard. Ampersands and octothorps and all that. Okay. I don't even know what that is. Okay. The octothorpe um, is the hashtag. Oh, really? The pound sign. Oh, I learned something new. Um, okay, so... So, we've got all these things. They're different sizes, though. Right? How's the computer going to know which to use when? And that comes down to the, the structure that's needed around these things. Sometimes that structure... Um, kind of gets abused. So, for instance, if we're talking about an integer, right? This is probably the easiest concept that I can come up with to understand. Um, so you have a byte set aside. You have eight bits set aside to hold the number. And it's a positive or a negative number ranging from negative 128 to positive 127 for instance, right? Yeah. But as a programmer, I say, yes, I want to use an integer. I know I'm just, I just want a small value number for this. And, you know, I just want to know if it's um, below a certain number. Then I'm going to, like, if, it, if it's 99, then that's fine. If it's 100, then maybe I need to do something special about it, right? Um, but they'd never taken into consideration what if it's a negative number. And so maybe somebody who's malicious wants to exploit this weakness and they say, I know that the logic for this is going to do something for positive numbers, but it's going to fail or it's going to do the reverse for a negative number. So I will add to the number to, to 99, say, I'm going to add 30. So now suddenly I'm getting high negative returns on that. Like 125 or something. I can't do math in my head. Um, yeah. So so it'll actually trick the, trick the system to do this. And I was just looking up and reading on... It's, co it's called an integer overflow. And it's a problem from like way, way back in the day. And you'd think that people have learned better from this and implemented systems to, to avoid this. Um... But no, just as recently as, like, last year, Diablo 3 had a problem where um, people would be putting stuff up on the auction house and it would be expecting a, a positive number. And if somebody bid uh, a certain am amount greater, um, like, outside of the range, it would actually give them money back and the item that they'd win from the auction house. Huh. So that's an example of an integer overflow leading to, you know, people, an unexpected value. Somebody's exploiting the weakness to get, you know, virtual money back in this case and, and the item. And that's, that's quite current and also quite from quite a big programming company. Yeah. Like you'd think they learned better. And, and how do they fix this? They went into their code, they changed it from an integer to something called an unsigned integer, which is when you only want a positive value, then you write an unsigned integer, meaning that instead of going from negative 128 to 127, then I can go from 0 to 255. Right. Right, and then you never need to worry about those negative consequences. 
Or another thing you could do is code for it. If you do want to have the possibility of having a negative value, then as a programmer, it's, it's on you to look at these situations where somebody could do something um, unexpected and just think outside of the box and test for it. But now, that's essentially when it comes down to uh, the b biggest benefit for malicious people is that if they can continuously think far enough outside the box, you can't account for necessarily everything that someone is going to do or try. Yeah, so there's a trade-off, right? You don't want to write for anything possible because you, you'll, one, never release the code, right? You'll never get enough time to actually get around to do it because um, you'll never think of all of the scenarios. And, and two, um, pe people will think of kind of new ways to get around it and new unique ways. And so you kind of could never, ever come up with all of the scenarios. But it behooves us to learn about the problems that have occurred in the past, the ones that are super frequent, and actually um, invest the effort for it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the um, when it comes down to something like an integer overflow that's giving back money. Yeah, and and right, because that could be a costly mistake, right? In the case of Blizzard making this mistake in their Diablo game, right? It was discovered out in the field. People had to investigate why the problem was happening, right? Then they had to report it back. They had to go get the developer to redevelop the game. It had to go through test cycles. Had to be make sure made sure that it, everything was going to work fine. That it didn't break some other functionality. Get released back out into the public, right? All of that's time and money. In the meantime, they've got to assign people to investigate people who are exploiting this weakness, maybe banning their accounts, right? It could have a lot of bad effects from just somebody at the beginning not taking the time to say, what happens if it wraps around to a negative value? Mm. Right? And, I, and I'm not blaming Blizzard because it's a mistake that a lot of people make. So I kind of am blaming Blizzard. But, but my point is that everybody should harness the same amount of blame who makes the mistake. And what any programmer should do is test for scenarios that they're not thinking of. If I'm only expecting numbers, what happens if somebody puts a letter in, right? Um, if I'm if I'm only expecting somebody, or if I want to display something on a website, you know, somebody could enter in some JavaScript which will redirect my people to another page that I didn't want them to see, or do something malicious to the users who are coming to my web page. Right. So, it's one of these things that takes time to get educated on the concepts first and that's hopefully what we're going to cover in this is some of these problems that are out there teach people um, what to look for and educate them better so they don't make these costly mistakes down the line it's part of value that we hope to, to educate people will bring and it, it just saves money all the way down the line um, if you catch it and test then it's going to cost more than if you took the couple minutes to do it because it's extra resources when you're talking about enterprise-type class systems, um, it gets really expensive really fast as, as you start scaling down, down the line, right? If you're printing CDs, there's a reprint fee, or DVDs, I should say, you know, there's reprint fees for those, for sending software out. Um, it just gets more and more expensive as you go. Yeah. Bandwidth for patches. Absolutely. Right, and then there's reputational costs, too. There was a couple of game companies that released um, Gold Master DVDs of their game, and you couldn't install it. It just wouldn't work. So essentially, they released a game that didn't work, they sold it to a bunch of people, and then had to release a patch That's just brutal. to be able to get it so that they could install it and run it. Like, wow. From a situation like that, I don't remember what the game was, but from a situation like that, um, what are the odds that people are going to be looking forward to your next big release? Yeah, really. A rep um, reputation does play a big part in the marketplace, right? Yeah, and then when you're looking at uh, 
like security wise or enterprise level like man these are these are huge account type things if you're if you're not able to put out basic software that um that will allow for the security like your reputation for that kind of stuff is essentially all you've got for people to go on yeah and so over the years people have started off with these very rigid um, development systems so that they can be sure of the quality of code throughout it and release it but it's such a rigid system that it doesn't allow you to make a mistake basically and, and correct that mistake is is very costly um, so that's where these d- different uh, development structures have come up. So the old one might be a waterfall structure where uh, you do a bunch of code, you release it, um, and then you have a product, and then you go and write a patch for it in a waterfall approach. Or there's a much more dynamic approach that people are doing um, kind of recently, not all that recently, uh, where it's an agile development practice or extreme coding where people... Um, just write and release in multiple iterations a lot faster, not necessarily with less testing, um, but but they'll test smaller components so that they can come out with these things faster and, and make these fixes faster. Hmm. Agile, and, agile development. Yeah, and and now that um, you know people are going a lot more app centric, you can see that being a lot more useful. But again, you don't want to overburden people with downloading. Know, whole new systems so so apple and google are allowing for these delta changes to be downloaded now rather than having to download the whole executable all over again hmm. and yeah so that's kind of the ones versus zeros that's that's what i want to cover i think that's uh an excellent show a lot to think of a lot to think about um just as kind of a wrap-up, we are always looking for any kind of feedback. If you do want to send feedback email to us or leave comments on our website, in-security.org, you can send email to feedback at in-security.org. Also, if you want to leave any kind of comments, um, we would love to hear from you. For a show like this, if you want to, just keep in mind, you can always go back and listen to parts, because uh, there was a lot of really good information in this one. Yeah, and we'll just keep building on it. Awesome. Um, but yeah, definitely looking back for feedback. Um, this time we're actually recording you know, in the day on a Saturday rather than late at night, so hopefully I sound less tired. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm rambling too fast, so you know, let me know. Uh, what what your preference is and um, we learn as we go so hopefully this time my mic sounds less uh, less poppy with breathing into it I've tried to locate it in a better spot I turn away when I breathe <laughs> chocolate rain so tune in next time we're going to be talking about Colonel Sunders <laughs> I see what you did there <laughs> Yeah, that's more along the lines of uh, how the OS works and and manipulates memory and some of the bad things that can be done um, from the operating system uh, by people exploiting the operating system itself, things that people look out for there. So tune in for that, and I will probably be eating chicken. (laughs) All right, thanks a lot, Matt. Have yourself a good week. Bye. Bye.